0: I want you to know that we get the wrong idea about Jesus. A lot of times we think that when we come to Jesus, uh, and if Jesus knew us, and if he knew our secret thoughts, and if he knew what we did, and if he knew our secret lives, that there would be something in Jesus that would respond to us with disdain or condemnation, or Jesus would reject us That Jesus wouldn't want to be with us or us to draw near to him. We get the wrong idea about Jesus. And I think we do that partly because this is sometimes the way we respond to other people. When we find out something about other people that is difficult or hard, sometimes it causes us to draw away from them and not to want to be with them. But what we're going to learn today is that Jesus, in actual fact, responds in just the opposite way. We think that Jesus uh, always wanted to be with people that were totally like him, people who were moral and good and upright and virtuous. But what we're going to find today is that Jesus always gravitated toward people who were unlike him. And he looked with compassion and kindness and grace and mercy and love on sinners. So, um, renaming our, uh, our Lenten Sermon series, and thanks to Elizabeth Harrison, one of our volunteers who does our graphics, and... I just haven't felt comfortable with the series, and I don't think the fire engine red has really worked very well for Lent. And so, the new series is Trusting Jesus' Authority. Now, if somebody has superior, uh, has authority, it's somebody who has superior wisdom, and they had a wider, wider vision than you do, and they have good intentions with respect to your life. And so you can trust their authority because they can see more and they're gonna lead you in a way that's gonna be good for you. Now, and Lisa's in my household, uh, sometimes I think the authority is Alexa. Alexa, if you have an Alexa, you know, Alexa knows everything. You know, Alexa, what's the weather at Snowshoe right now? Alexa knows. And Alexa can do anything. The other night, Lisa said, Alexa, hall light off. And so downstairs, the hall light goes off. And then she says, Alexa, porch light off. And the porch light goes off. And then she says, my ever-loving wife says, Alexa, Nelson off. <laughs> See, I tend to get a little chatty at bedtime and so I say, and another thing. And Lisa, I got another idea. And I got another topic I want to talk to you about. And she's over there with her eyes closed and she says things. she says, sentences like, can you believe it? She says sentences like, I'm sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark's Jesus <laughs> arrives with power and authority. Mark wants us to know that it's rapid action. So, Jesus is presented in Mark in chapter 1 and 2 as healing the sick and driving out demons and calming the wind and the waves. Jesus is on the scene in power and authority. Mark is trying to convince us the king of heaven has come to earth. And as John the Baptist said in chapter 1, the prologue, this is the king of kings for whom we should level the mountains and fill in the valleys. But Jesus' power is not the power and authority that we're used to. So, he didn't come to try to overthrow Rome. His power was more subversive than that. He came to lay down his life for the forgiveness of sin and to show his love for us and his mercy so that we might trust in his will and his way. So, Jesus arrives in Galilee announcing the gospel of the kingdom and so he says, the time has come. This is the theme verse in the first half of Mark. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. And this is his invitation repent and believe the good news. So please turn in your Bibles or worship guides to Mark chapter two, verses thirteen to seventeen. And I'll ask you, I'm asking you to hold this open in your laps, your Bibles, or your paper worship guides so you can follow along and look at it for yourself. Don't take it from me, look at the text for yourself. Mark was the first of the four Gospels written. Mark didn't witness Jesus' life and teachings, but he was the interpreter of the Apostle Peter. So I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able. This is God's Word. It is given to you in love. Hear the Word of the Lord. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, what we've just read is an historical account. It's not a story, it's an historical account. And I like for you to get your bearings and think about who it is that you've just encountered in the story. So, first of all, there's Jesus, and then there is Levi then there are Levi's friends, there are the disciples, and there are also the teachers of the law who were Pharisees. So, let's walk back through this passage. If you look at verse 13, it says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him So, Jesus had arrived in Galilee, and he'd begun his public ministry, and I think of it as a peripatetic ministry. He just walked around, and he was led by the Spirit, and he did ministry as he encountered people. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. So, the key thing is that Levi was a tax collector. You need to know the taxation process in the New Testament world was crooked and corrupt, There were no posted toll costs or tax rates. If you were a merchant and you rolled into the station with your goods, you had no clue how much you were going to be charged. Levi would have just come up to your cart and counted your carts and poked around in your sacks and checked all your goods, and then he just would have pronounced a figure that you were called to pay. And you can bet that with all the tax collectors in Rome, Levi would have had an amount that he was paying to King Herod, And he would also be lining his own pockets. But despite despite the corruption, if you were a merchant, you were at his mercy. Levi swindled poor people. He robbed good people of their hard-earned money. And there was nothing you could do about it because Roman soldiers were there to enforce whatever he said. And he was probably giving them money too on the side. So the point is, everybody hated tax collectors. They were traitors. It's been said that you would have responded to a tax collector in Jesus' day, much like you would respond to teen trafficking today. So, Jesus walks up to Levi, and so here we have this thing. What were the kind of people that Jesus would have associated with? Would he have always wanted to be with people like him? No, Jesus seemed to always want to gravitate toward people who were unlike him. And so, it's as if Levi makes a I mean, Jesus makes a beeline for Levi. And what Jesus doesn't say to Levi is, give your money back, (laughs) and I'll receive you. And what he doesn't say to Levi is, I know your thoughts, and I know what your life is like, and I know what you do in secret, so if you do X, Y, and Z, I'll be kind and gracious to you. Jesus doesn't say any of that. One of the surprising things about Jesus is he called people to follow him before they believed in him. And it's helpful for us to remember that sometimes. See, in verse 14, Jesus says, He just moves toward Levi and He says to Levi, This, He says, Follow me. And Levi got up and he followed him. So there's a sense, Mark is always trying to evoke who is this man? In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, um, it says, Jesus spoke with authority, not like the teachers of the law. And I want you to hone in on this word authority. It's a word that originally means of the it, it literally means of the original stuff. And it comes from the same root as author. The point is that when Jesus spoke to people, he spoke with original rather than derived or borrowed authority. And so when people when Jesus would come up to a person like Levi, Levi must have experienced him as if Levi as if Jesus was the author of Levi's story. He seemed to know Levi and he spe- seemed to speak with authority about Levi as if he was the origins of Levi's own life. And so Levi dropped everything and followed Jesus. So this was the way Jesus exercised his authority. People just experienced him as knowing more as being part of the origins of their lives and the heavens and the earth. And I wonder sometimes what was going on in Levi. And the way I think about it is I can imagine that Levi had an ache in his soul. And I just want you to think about that. Levi was getting rich at his booth, uh, but there was probably something that was a discomfort and an unease inside there was an emptiness and we know what that's like we can be sitting in church but there's still something uh that's an ache inside and there's something that's out of joint and there's something that we know is not as it should be and so jesus spoke to levi with a new kind of authority and promise and so levi got up and followed him So I think we get the wrong idea about Jesus and how he responded to sin and failing. We're sure Jesus is going to respond to people like Levi with condemnation and with uh, correction. But in fact, he responded to Levi with kindness and compassion. I also think we sometimes get the wrong idea about church. I was talking to my nephew this past week, and my nephew is not involved in church. He's 30 30 years old. And I asked him, in his opinion, why many young people weren't interested in church. And he said two things. First, he said that for him, his life is so fast and it's very hard for him to prioritize the things that he knows would be most important for him. The second thing was he wondered out loud if, as he put it, hungover, broken people would, be, would feel welcome in church. To use his words, what would it be like if one Sunday morning on the back row there were 20 people just back from Vegas? And I've thought about that and I've thought about do we get the wrong idea about church? Who did Jesus hang around with? Who did he move toward? And who do we move toward and how? You know, we say here everybody's on the hospitality team at Community West and we have to remember that embedded in the word hospitality is the word hospital. What would it be like for us to put the hospital back in our hospitality at this church? So Let's go on. Verse 15. Look with me at verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So, who would be friends of a tax collector but other tax collectors? And sinners were simply those who were outside of the Jewish religious law. So you've got a house full of tax collectors, i.e. sinners, and others outside of the Jewish religious law. And it occurred to me that this is probably one of the earliest examples of the missional church. At Community West, we we, uh, embrace two strategies with respect to church. One of them is attractional, come and see here. The other one is missional, and that is we bring church to where you are So, Jesus wasn't having church in a synagogue, come and see, although he might. He was having church at Levi's house where he was, and he was convening all these people uh, there. Verse 16, when the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors. So, just just a note here. Uh, you have to wonder, well, how are the teachers of the law looking in on what's happening at this dinner party? Well, in the ancient world, houses had open windows and doors. So maybe the teachers of the law were sort of peering around like outside of the window and uh, sort of loitering outside the window and peering in through the open window or door. Or maybe the dinner party was in an outdoor courtyard. In any event, when they saw what Jesus was doing, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Which was a fair question. Because according to one of the ancient Jewish law books, if tax collectors enter a house, the house becomes unclean. So Jesus is in a clash of kingdoms with the Jewish leaders. And this happens, it's a thread throughout the book of Mark. And later in Mark chapter 2, Jesus heals on the Sabbath and the Jewish law forbade any kind of work on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, but the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. And so here's the thing that's happening here. Jesus is, he's not reforming the religious law. He's not trying to make it better, but just more of the same. He's actually bringing an end to the law. And he's replacing it with himself. And so here we are, and Jesus is in a clash with the the teachers of the law. And they ask an honest question. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And what was Jesus' response? He says, on hearing this, verse 17, Jesus said to them, "'It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners.'" Now, this is important. Jesus is the one who introduces this image of a doctor. And sometimes we say Jesus is the great physician. But a doctor is there to heal you, right, to restore you. A doctor may have to hurt you to heal you through surgery, but a doctor pledges to do no harm. A doctor says to you, trust me with your malady, your condition. My hands are healing hands. My hands are loving hands. And so Jesus likens Himself to the good doctor. And so He's inviting us to trust in His authority, in His wisdom, and His power. Jesus knew, ultimately, the only way to deal with our contagion was to absorb it into Himself. In Isaiah 53, 5, it says, "...but He was wounded for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His stripes we are healed." And later in Mark 2, Jesus begins this thread that continues through the first half of Mark. And nobody really understands it until Mark chapter 8. But he says to them in Mark chapter 2, he says, But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. So he's speaking about himself. And they're at a wedding They're at a feast. And he's speaking about himself, and it's really looking ahead to his second coming. And he refers to himself as the bridegroom. And he says there will be a time when the bridegroom will be taken away from you. And what he mean was this king had come to die. And in love, this king would lay down his life for the people he came to save. He was trust. He was inviting them to trust the good doctor to heal their sin. So when I read this, I wondered to myself... Um, Well, was Jesus saying he came for Levi and his friends because they're sick, but the teachers of the law weren't sick, so he didn't come for the teachers of the law? And I think it's important to understand that later Jesus would say of the Pharisees, they were like whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. And so, There are bad person sins and good person sins. Bad person sins are sins of prostitutes and prisoners, drunkards and drug addicts, teen traffickers and tax collectors. Bad person sins are sins that you read about in the news. But good person sins are sins of pride and envy and greed and lust. Good person sins are sins of the heart. Good person sins are sins of misdirected desires, which is idolatry. So what is idolatry? Idolatry is wanting a good thing as if it's an ultimate thing. And I've been recommending this Lenten devotional, Journey to the Cross, and there's an excerpt from day 15, and it's a little bit long. It's two slides, but I'd love for you to read it with me because Tripp says, you can be theologically aware and biblically literate and still be serving idols in your daily life. You can be faithful in personal daily worship and still have actions, reactions, and responses at street level that are shaped by idols. You can be involved with ministry and have areas in your life that are under the active and functional control of something other than God." It could be the love or respect of another person. It could be the desire for control. It could be a position of power and influence. It could be the desire for a certain experience. It could be the need to be right or the quest to be successful or the love of theological knowledge or the desire for material possessions. It could be hatred or bitterness against another person. It could be physical strength or beauty. It could be anything in creation that replaces the rightful rule of the Creator in your heart. Anything this side of God can become an idol. And so I wonder for you today, what is it in your heart that is a good thing that has become an improper thing? Because it has an improper hold on your heart. See, we get the wrong idea about Jesus. We assume that he would not move towards sinners with compassion and kindness, and yet that's exactly what he does. Now, some of you may be saying today, well, why should I care about repenting of my sin? Why should I care about self-examination and confession and repentance and forgiveness? And I would say to you, you know, start with the ache in your soul. Uh, Start with where there's an unease or whether this discomfort, where something in you isn't quite right, where the spirit is sort of nibbling around the edges at something that's going on in your life. I'll share uh, a personal testimony. Yesterday, I worked out with Lisa and my sister an area of repentance that I had just a little niggling discomfort with in my own life. And the background is that I come from a family of, I'll call it, investors. My father would take me in his office when I was in high school, and we invested in my first stock then. Uh, And what little I had, um, I was learning to invest that and save that and try to grow that. And so I also have a business background and had a business degree in college, and this is something that I've been interested in, and others in my family have been also. But lately, I've started to feel uncomfortable with the amount of time that I've spent and just the research and all that goes in to that kind of thing. And I've just felt like it's had an improper hold on my life. It's just taken too much time and it's been too much the way that I've been approaching it. And so I had to kind of come clean uh, with Lisa and worked out with her the change, a change of course in my life. And also, yesterday, I was prompted by the Spirit um, to delete a game on my phone, and not all games are this way, but I just started to notice how much this game appealed to Lady Luck, and I started to feel uneasy just about the overt messaging of the game, and Lisa would say how much time I was spending on the game. Um, But my experience of these things was that there was something that began to sort of niggle at me and nibble at my soul. It was a type of ache or unease. And I began to trust in the authority of my Savior to take me in a place, really a place of freedom. And so my experience of repenting of these things really has been freedom. Now, your testimony will be completely different. Because there are as many ways that these things lodge in our hearts as there are people. And your acre discomfort is going to look completely different than mine. But make no mistake, what's happening is the Spirit is freeing you when you trust in the good doctor's authority to heal you from sin. In the Beatitudes, I've been looking at the Beatitudes during Lent, and Jesus says... Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. And I think what Jesus means is, if you want the doctor to heal you, you have to become poor. So if you maintain that you're okay and all is right with you, then nothing will ever happen in you. Nothing will ever change. But if you're willing to become poor and enter into your poverty and let the Spirit, and somebody else show you your poverty, then that's the first step for becoming rich. You have to let the Spirit remove your blindness and show you your sin, which brings sorrow for sin, which is the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they or you will be comforted. So, we're trying to get into this at Lent. You know, Lent is a time when uh, for self-examination, for confession, for repentance, uh, for forgiveness. And we all need it. That's the point. Nobody is, is self-sufficient. Nobody is where the Savior wants us to be. And so he's gravitating toward us now, and he's knocking at the door to our heart, and he wants, he wants to say, I want to come in, and I want to heal you, and I want to change you. William Barclay writes, the one person for whom Jesus can do nothing is the person who thinks himself so good that he does not need anything done for him. And the one person for whom Jesus can do everything is the person who is a sinner and a failure and who knows it and who longs in his heart of hearts for a cure. So, Peg, I'll invite you to come up. We're about to move toward communion, and I want to create space for the Spirit to reveal the ache in your soul. And so I'm just going to create space for that. And what I'd love for you to do is just open yourself to this process of self-examination, and perhaps you would move on to confession and repentance and receiving the forgiveness that Christ offers. So let's create a little space as Peg leads. welcoming the work of the Spirit, the gracious work of the Spirit in our lives, who wants to heal us and forgive us and change us. And let Levi be a beacon of hope for us. You know, maybe you relate to Levi. Your life has involved blatant, unforgettable sin. Maybe like Levi, you have demons inside, active addictions or secret sins or besetting sins. And maybe you've lost hope of ever being healed and free. Well, Levi, as some of you know, would later be renamed Matthew, the Apostles, who name means, name means literally in the Hebrew, gift of God. And if you're having a hard time seeing yourself healed, maybe you can remember that Jesus is renaming us gift of God and the beloved friend of the Savior. Let's pray. Spirit of God, search us and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there are any offensive ways in us and lead us in the way everlasting. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.